Hi, Always Already listeners. This is B And Rachel. And John. And we are gathered here today <laughs> to read Expulsions, Brutality and Complexity in the Global Economy by Saskia Sassen. So it's the original three. It is the original three, indeed. I'm happy to be back. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love James. I love Emily. But there's something special about it being the original three. So are we going to have a, a few, like, rib-jabbing moments throughout the conversation today? Like old times? Just like old times, John? <laughs> a cockfight and me. <laughs> I love it. Wow. All right. I wasn't going to go that route, but yeah, sure. Basically. <laughs> Let's do it. It's it's happened before. I got, it could happen again. I got my coffee in hand. I got my cock in hand. I got my coffee in hand. No, we're good. No, okay. we're explicit. Yeah. Yeah, we have we the got explicit the rating on iTunes. Yeah. We're, okay, cool. We can say whatever we want. We're okay with that. I wonder if Emily and James will listen to this and be sad that we're celebrating the original threeness of the I song. think they'll be totally fine. They'll be fine. Because I know that we can, we've acknowledged, we can say whatever we want to about B. Because we know he never will never listen. But I that think is patently very true. true. You can also say whatever you want about me because okay. I rarely listen. I listen to every every second of the ones I'm not in. Look, so. full disclosure, I don't like listening to my own voice. Same. So I no, but I mean, but when it's me, Emily, and Rachel, oh, I see what you're we saying. talk about you a lot. Oh, okay. Well, my feelings get hurt so easily, so I avoid those moments. That's true. I, I we can... talk about you with love. Okay, good. Obviously. And just a side of derision. A little side of derision. All right. Uh, what chapters are we talking about today, friends? The introduction. The introduction, chapters two, three, and the conclusion. Yes. So the introduction is the savage sorting. Chapter two is the new global market for land. Chapter three, finance and its capabilities. Crisis is systemic logic. And the conclusion, at the systemic edge. I just want to start by saying that I found this. Is this be... a pre or post summary statement? Oh, right. Okay, I'll save it. It was. I was just gonna say I found it refreshing, and I'll tell you why right after the summary. Wow, that was skillful. Yes. Saskia Sassen's work, Expulsions, asks us to rethink our traditional conceptions of neoliberalism and the exceptionalism that comes with it, demanding that we enrich ourselves with a new vocabulary to deal with what she calls the radicalness of our new condition. Sawson argues that even the most accessible and reasonable theories need updating. What does rising inequality, long-term unemployment, or even displacement mean when generations of people cannot find meaningful work, or when millions of people on our planet can never return to their homes? What do we do with these exigencies of generational poverty when the very source of employment has been replaced by literally an absence of any productive work? How do we think about displacement from homes when the very sites of a displaced peoples have been replaced by high-rise condominiums, or even more brutally, a war? We are dealing with an age of systemic devastation, of what she calls systemic edges. Thus, ours is a time for a new set of terms that cover these immediately pressing and completely different forms of devastation. Expulsions, for Sassen, is such a term. It captures such conditions. And in the wake of the 21st century's economic, political, and social systems, humans should understand that these systems are built by something that Sassen observes is coextensive with these, with these expulsions, and that is brutality. Brutality underlies the deployment of such systems in the everyday. Indeed, the ver very brutality of these systems is masked by its everyday qualities. Common sources of knowledge, for example mathematics, that have been deployed within economics for decades, reveal their underlying brutality when algorithms are used that enable the rapid conditions of poverty that systemically expel the most marginalized from their homes in the United States, or when dams are built that literally wash away entire villages. Globally, we must rethink how our common knowledges, such as finance or the so-called everyday of politics, have produced the conditions for these everyday brutalities. We must re-theorize what we perceive as common. When the oppressor is no longer an entity that the oppressed can simply rise against, we must rethink the oppressor and the forms of resistance that come along with it. Thus, we must resituate ourselves outside the extant conceptual vocabularies of economics, politics, social theory, and the like, in order to see how the ground-level devastation and brutality of our age 
may actually be built into our everyday con concepts of the human condition. So Rachel, now that we've heard that summary, I'm ready for your brilliance. Okay, so I was just going to say, I found this so refreshing because often in um, our little niche of a niche in theory, we talk about a lot of these broader themes, capitalism, neoliberalism, and I find myself um, very um, subpar in terms of my ability to concretely talk about what I mean when I say things like neoliberalism or the spread of, you know, foreign direct investments or all of these things that mm -hmm. she, I think, does a really good job concretizing, but also simultaneously while tying it into theory and not theory to the point where um, it's not theoretical to the point where we get utterly lost in it, which right. I think is one of her goals in starting from the bottom, yeah. as she says. Um, but also she doesn't simply talk about statistics in a um, decontextualized way. Yeah, no, so it specifically has reference points that we can, that we have, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And it's cogent, and it's it's purely cogently written. It's great. So yeah, what, it's great. So yeah. what did you mean, Rachel? Maybe we can talk to the listeners yeah. a bit about what her kind of working from the bottom means for her and for you. Um, so actually, in the very end of her introduction, I believe it is, she talks about um, what she means and what she's trying to do. Um, she says, what I seek to contribute is a theorization that begins with the facts at ground level, freed from the intermediation of familiar institutions, and takes us to the other side of traditional geopolitical, economic, and cultural differentiations. So I think what she's trying to do is not, I mean, she, she acknowledges throughout the pieces we read, the parts that we read, that um, there's many people who have talked about the impact of structural adjustment policies, for example, mm -hmm. um, and the IMF and international financial institutions on developing country economies and how it really spiraled them into greater debt and kind of eroded the public sector. Like, she acknowledges that that's true, but what she's trying to do, I think, and B, this goes maybe to your question of denaturalization, mm -hmm. is denaturalize the um, discussion of that within the context of specific countries by showing that there's certain trends that supersede and surpass and are also, as she says, subterranean mm -hmm. to all these different countries. Um, and she does that as one example by talking about the housing crisis and the financial um, crisis in 2009 in the U.S. and how that relates to the housing crisis in other places, looking at structural adjustment and its impacts in the global South and also austerity measures in Europe. So I think she does a really interesting, and even if there's people who could refute or dispute some of the details, it's a really, really interesting thought project to read mm -hmm. in that sense. And I think, sorry, I'm still talking. No, um, don't apologize. That was a very gendered sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, <laughs> I think the other thing is that it denaturalizes the very concepts of global south and global north, Yeah, mm -hmm. which is really, really important. It's not just sort of like ever pinning the global south as this, you know, um, victimized region of the world um, that is sort of as such because of either some like gross Huntington clash of civilizations or, um, you know, because it's an oversimplification, but she really ties the ties it to a broader genealogy of excavation and expropriation. But I thought there could have been a lot more on colonial histories yeah. and how that relates to, um, excavation, not excavation, expulsion. no, not expulsion. Um, Extraction. Extraction, thank there's you. There's a lot of X. There's some expropriation. What other X's are there going on? That's it. Expelling. Boyfriends. Ex-boyfriends? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think, you know, even in the introduction, right, um, it brings to the fore the fact that forms of knowledge and intelligence we respect and admire often at the origin of long transaction chains that um, can end in simple expulsions. But the idea of transaction chains... Um, you know, in itself is something that tries to root at the ground level, grounded theory in, in a certain way. Um, I love this notion of, um, of denaturalizing or politicizing a thing or a set of experiences that we have sort of come to just sort of accept, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in what ways does this then 
in its denaturalizing or in its politicizing, as it were? Um, in what ways does it create the space for activity? If it's one thing, or uh, I say activity, but is it revolutionary activity or is it um, action that you know engages with you know a set of power structures or dynamics that um, you know can shift in one way or another? And you know. I don't want to jump too far ahead in terms of like what we plan on discussing, but the options that we have, you know, as it were, um, to be engaged with some of these, you know, more or less systemic forms of, um, of, uh, control, right. Economic control and, and otherwise, I don't, cause I don't want to jump ahead to like Keynesianism and all that stuff, but mm. you know, I mean, it's interesting because, <clears throat> Kind of thinking through what both of you just said, I think one of the more impressive aspects of this work is that its specificity like works to do this kind of you know she talks about kind of conceptually subterranean threads, yeah, right, and that she's able to really travel between these specific instances with incredibly thick you know she calls them thick sites, I think, mm-hmm. or something like that um of, you know, the financial crisis and housing crisis or of land grabs across the world um, by various countries. And that these particular instances stand out as kind of singularities on their own, but they're not just singularities, right? They're singularities that can speak to something much broader than singularities. Oh, no, Rachel got a paper cut. That's okay. Which I just is the worst kind of stuck a staple deep into my flesh. Oh, oh no, not a paper cut. That's worse than a paper yeah, cut. Yeah, it is. Um, You're speaking to a kind of DNA, isn't that what you like had referenced at one point? Mm-hmm. Kind of like we can identify a DNA within like each of these otherwise singularities that share that have a that share this kind of genealogy. As you were saying, yeah. That I mean, you know, she, she talks about it. This is like page seven. Is emergent systemic trends shaped by a few very basic, and I can't read my notes anymore. That are like beneath the these trends are like beneath the way we usually cut up concepts, uh, mm-hmm. geographical boundaries, geopolitical boundaries, and so on and so forth. So it's the cutting across pointing to this like broader logic and practices of expulsion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she says here multi-sided materializations of trends that are mm-hmm. deeper than speculation and hyper-profits but are as yet invisible in that they have not been detected, named or conceptualized. My focus on the materializing of global trends inside countries contrasts with the far more common focus on the deregulation of nat- national borders where the border is seen as the site for our current transformation. So mm-hmm. I think that in that way, she's sort of moves, she moves away from a state centric yeah. um, analysis, but in this brilliant way, because she doesn't a lot of times um, when I'm trying to talk about like a, moving away from a state centric mm-hmm. approach, I get increasingly abstract rather mm-hmm. than materializing in, in concrete form what I mean. And so I think she both um, moves away from that sort of analysis, which decontextualizes these broader trends in only looking at the border or the state as the site of some specific change or point of departure. But at the same time, she does that by talking about specifics that happen in material, real. And in that way, like (laughs) to throw an overused and trite word, right. She talks about globalization in a way that misses the usual traps in talking about globalization. Absolutely. Is kind of and neoliberalism. I don't hmm. think I saw the word neoliberalism no, I mean, once. This is a question I had, though. You know, when she says that there are, you know, these are trends or, you know, materialized trends or whatever that we haven't yet captured, do you think that that's correct? Like, do you kind of left critiques of neoliberalism or capitalism or neocolonialism or imperialism or any of that, do you think that they capture what she's getting at? Like, or perhaps the better way to phrase it is, what is she getting at or what does she think she's getting at that, like, our discourses about neoliberalism or colonialism or capitalism or Marxism or whatever miss? Because you know her claim is that they're that, that, that they're missing something. I mean, I think she's do she what she's doing, and what let's say somebody who's only talking in the realm of you know abstract political theories doing complement each other really well. So I think you couldn't necessarily have one without the other. But I think what she's doing is trying to fill that um, that gap. Mm-hmm. What she's saying: the categorizations that we have are out of date, or at least the way that we're trying to explain these global events. Um, the, and interconnected events are out of date, however much useful they have, or however much use they do have. 
um, you know, I think she was referred to as sort of master categorizations Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, need to be cut in. But your question is, is she successful or how useful is that? Or just, I mean, what is it that she does that like critical work on neoliberalism or that Marxism doesn't do? That's a good question. I mean, are we dealing with, you know, large scale effects of neoliberalism? I mean, is that the question um, in, in such a way as that studies of neoliberalism through or, you know, Marxist studies, et cetera, are just doing an inadequate job? Um, and is, you know, Sassen's, uh, you know, sort of position that the categorizations are incomplete or out of date? Um, when it seems to me that she's doing a lot of what people are actually engaging with, which are data, um, and are engaging with, you know, data about the spread of, um, you know, inequality, but investments within certain, you know, areas, the global city and the like, um, is Sassen engaged in something that's, you know, particularly original and as such, um, you know, is there a way that she's actually, and maybe this is what she was doing, is cross-cutting through the categorizations that exist in such a way okay. that yeah. makes a, makes a, the intervention is such that she's cross-cutting these categorizations, using them in such a way that, you know, give them more use, I suppose, or more utility, Oops, not to use an economics term, but to give them more utility than they already have if they're just used as a central means of looking at a phenomenon I mean, or, a pho- or a set of phenomena. She I, uses the word logic a lot, which is yeah. obviously a word that um, comes up in a lot of literature on neoliberalism. So I think that it shares that. She's looking to understand a certain cross-cutting logic that can't be confined to the specifics of like time and also states mm-hmm. or so place. But at the same time... The logic she's describing, it seems like it's both a subset as, of what we come to read about and know about as neoliberalism, but also different in a way that's helpful, though I don't know if I can pin down the way it's well, different. So look precisely. at this. This is something that's problematic, and I'm glad you weren't. So what matters for my argument is that, right, this is about imperialism. What page are we on? Uh, page 114. What matters for my argument is that the sharp, sharp growth in foreign um, ownership is significantly altering the character of local economies, notably land ownership, and diminishing the sovereign authority of the state over its territory. The process of acquisition may be less violent and disruptive than the empirical imperial uh, conquests of the past, but that does not mean they should be confused with more benign examples of foreign ownership. Um, and moving on. The... Oops. Excuse me, the placement of a job generating Ford Motors plant in Europe or a Volkswagen plant in Brazil. I'm not sure what was that, um, you know, in what ways is this this kind of, in the sense of less violence, more violence, in the sense yeah. of avoiding, as, as um, Ray, you were saying, maybe even before the, the podcast and avoiding, um, you know, the conceptualizations of imperialism and, con- and colonialism as such, if she's cross-cutting the issues of um, imperialism and colonialism. Um, what's been, what's miss, or at least what is missing from a statement that makes the claim that it's less violent than something that's imperial of the past, like of imperialism. Can I, before we answer that question, can I take a stab at what is this cross cutting difference? Yes. Yeah, please. please. Cause I was thinking about it while you two were talking and I actually was thinking about a conversation that B, you and I and Lindsay Whitmore had on like the Latour episode, like episode three or something, where we were talking about the problems with the way that us included, the people on the critical theory slash left talk about neoliberalism or capitalism and said how we often start from being like, all right, this is what neoliberalism is. And then we like go find these examples and then go back to the neoliberalism, what it is on like a broader level. Mm -hmm. And I think what she's trying to do is point out Mm -hmm. these kinds of singularities and starting from there, right? Rachel, like you said at the very beginning, like starting from the bottom and starting from like these materiality And then we might be able to build up these broader explanatory theories Mm -hmm. and like critical apparatuses and all of that, which she does, right? Um, But that it's like more Latourian in that way Mm -hmm. and not like starting with and imposing like, all right, I'm going to go look for neoliberalism and imagine I'm glad I I went and I found neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But that it's something something less like impositional, Mm -hmm. as impositional a word. Uh, Yeah, I I think that's great. I think that's really 
it. And I think also the other thing is it's a methodological question in the sense that if anybody, and this is much broader than this work, if you're going to start to look at, start by looking at a particular period. So she begins with the 1980s. That's where she sits, situates um, the, the beginning of, you know, her analysis and then looks at certain shifts. Anytime you talk about a moment or an event or a shift, it's going to risk taking it out of the genealogy of how these things have mutated over time. So mm-hmm. how has um, land extraction and resource extraction, violence shifted and mutated over time? And I think that risks decontextualizing it in some sense mm-hmm. from imperialism and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, though she does she for avoids, sure. Or she does, she... I'm, not, I'm not making a claim she avoids it mm-hmm. or doesn't. For me, it could have been contextualized more. I also, we didn't read the whole book, so it's hard to say. Yeah, we're reading sections. We're reading only sections. Mm-hmm. Can I read a quote? Yeah. Page six. Rather than giving meaning to facts by processing them upward through theorization, I do the opposite, bringing them down to their most basic elements in an effort to de-theorize them. Mm-hmm. Through such de-theorizing, I can then revisit inequality, finance, mining, land grabs, and much more in order to see what we would miss with more abstract categorizations. One instance is seeing the more radical fact of expulsions rather than nearly more inequality, financial speculation, mining advances, etc. In short, one aim of the book is to stay close to the ground in order to discover by suspending the overwhelming weight of the familiar categories through which we interpret current trends. And so that's, I don't know, maybe the suggestion there is like, even if we're wrong about what she's, about the potential difference in what she's doing, I think what she's pointing to there is saying that even the very act of not letting ourselves have recourse to those familiar categorizations might enable us to say something new and important. Absolutely. I think it's a really good intellectual exercise for that. I think the way Latour talked about it was a matter of concern. (laughs) My my bad. I brought up Latour this time. Now that you brought up Latour. Now, usually I would give B-shit. Yeah, exactly. See? No. I'm on rib jabbing. Um, well, it, you know, in that way, you know, I wonder. Okay, I, I, I don't want to just sort of accept, you know, bar none that, you know, simply, you know, holding this fact on the ground and de-theorizing. Can you? Tr- I just wonder the extent to which you can actually ever truly de-theorize a fact, you know, and as such claim it as a fact without having imbued it with a sense of meaning from the get-go. I, I mean, don't think she's claiming right. that yeah, she does this in any pure okay. way, right? Okay. I mean, yeah, I I don't think she is. So at least on some level, taking a step back from critical theory and the ways in which, you know, critical theory has made these categorizations of fact, but still understanding them within a certain kind of, you know, ontological... God, I'm using that word. Go for it. Okay. Understanding them with... Some ontological framework that gives the fact some, you know, accord and some meaning. Um, And, you know, and in doing so, I think, you know, she's obviously making this... um, the absurdion up front, which is great, um, and creating the caveat that, you know, the hope, my intention, you know, the, the goal of the work is to do the following types of things that, you know, even I'm wary of my, you know, hero Latour, um, still, <laughs> you know, still manages to, you know, imbue <laughs> these kinds these of kind of action figure. I do, I do, you know, and it actually talked. It's like, <laughs> question your ontology um you know it's it's very it's it's an interactive um uh, action hero um or action figure but yeah i there's you know there's the quality of like you know it's the other issue is like where's the human in all of this i suppose is uh, maybe the question that i was going to pose before the podcast that we could visit is the you know the extent to which Maybe other parts of the book deal specifically with the way the human is is engaged, and I don't want to be like superhumanistic and blah blah blah. Too late, uh, right? But where no, cockfight, cockfight. But where specifically, um, you know, for dealing with like denaturalizing a thing that is a, a set of processes that you know really human beings and you know and technologies and computations and formulas are all engaged and enmeshed with. You know, what about the dispossession and the expulsions? Um, where do the human beings who are expelled, as it were, um, or engaging in, you know, uh, the consequences of those expulsions, where are they situated in the larger framework and in what ways yeah. do they exist in, in the sense of, you know, agents or authors of their own fate? And then secondly, 
Um, or is that fifthly? I can't remember if I made 17 <laughs> points in that. 17th. Um, just to say expulsion, is that, in what way is that different from states of exception? In what way yes. is that different from, you know, a Schmidtian conception of it? Or Schmitty. Schmitty. Um, or, you know, Georgie Agamben's, uh, <laughs> hey Georgie, uh, Agamben's, you know, Georgie. ideals regarding the same thing. Or even, um, Mahillier's, um, ideas, yeah. um, and, habeas viscous. So I'm wondering, you know, in this sense, what is Sassen doing? And I don't want to say, I can't, I'm not, would definitely not lob the complaint is that this is an original work, which it is, but what exactly about expulsion as a theoretical categorization is doing a different kind of work than other authors are on, on similar kinds of subjects are engaging with. So, so if I can jump in when you are talking, sorry, about- Saskia. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that was awkward. <laughs> I got thrown off a little. <laughs> um, Go for it. When you were asking this question, what about the human? That's that's something that didn't strike me, but in retrospect, I, I think that, yeah, that's sort of an element that's less present. And I wonder if one reason is because of one of the issues she identifies in the agglomeration of power or lack thereof. So and on page 10, she says... Today, the oppressed have been mostly have mostly been expelled and survive at a great distance from their oppressors. Further, the quote oppressor is increasingly a complex system Mm -hmm. that combines persons, networks and machines with no obvious center. And yet there are sites where it all comes together, where power becomes concrete and can be engaged and where the oppressed are part of the social infrastructure for power. Global cities are one such one such site. So I wonder if part of her discussion of the decentering of power and also the disaggregation, for example, of financial securities that she talks about in chapter two. That's a really good example. So if somebody that's getting a housing mortgage, that's buying a mortgage um, is 15 steps removed from um, the, the real value mm-hmm. of their house because um, the, the, the securitization or the security, the financial security is removed from the actual object that it originally is attached to, which is the value of the house. Right. So when you're 15 steps removed from the real value of the object of the, the financial security, um, it, you're so disaggregated as the person who originally bought the mortgage that you have no, from, from the potential um, financial gain, mm-hmm that you have no way of, you have no control over it anymore. And so I think that that was such a good example of, so I almost think her analysis of this decentralization explains in part why she maybe doesn't discuss in as much depth the the human level. Or it could be, you know, in this way, um, and not certainly by any means lambasting the work, but saying like this can be a generative way of rethinking, um, you know, especially for someone who has political, like for, for me, a political investment and in wanting to engage with how individuals through dispossession and disaffection, um, you know, identify themselves and in, in act, right. either act politically, engage in, you know, in, in, in agential activity or whatever, for, even with the death of agency, I don't care. All that stuff, um, that this is generative work in such a way as to say, given the 15 steps of removal from an entity of oppression, um, or, you know, or an entanglement of, of, of a rather kind of a machinic oppression. How do we reimagine, um, you know, the individual, the thinking, willing subject within that entanglement? It's a good question. Um, and I think that would be really generative in, in such a way as to say that... I mean, that's kind of the sequel to this book, It right? would be. It would be a fantastic sequel to this book um, that, you know, any number... Yeah. <laughs> incorporation incorporation there we go the sequel okay right? yeah incorporation um, before we get to those questions i have thoughts about both of, about <clears throat> several things both of you just raised um one of them is with regards to racial what you were just saying and picking up on beast question about where is the human i think that's a really good point because it's almost like it's much harder or me i don't know if it's less important but it's harder, it's harder. to talk about the human or individual humans, like, in a household, when not only is it, like, 15 steps down the line, but, like, that mortgage and thus that house is now distributed among, you know, however many different financial instruments, like tens, if not hundreds of different financial instruments, all of them packaged with hundreds or thousands of other tiny slices of finan- of mortgages or other financial instruments, yeah. right? So it's almost like that complexity does make it harder. I don't know about less important. Mm-hmm. 
Wait, did I say less simple? No, no, no. Uh, I, I'm, I'm raising that question. Yeah, no, I think mm-hmm. it is. I think it's an analytic, like she's making an analytic. Well, yeah. It's, it, one of the contents of her argument is this idea of decentralization and disaggregation of power. But that means that analytically it's harder to see the human and where their power comes in, unless that's just not part of the purview of her project. Well, I mean, in the, it, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. I was just going to say again, we didn't read the last chapter, so we don't exactly. Um, because, it, I mean, on some level, I feel like then that would be con- sort of like the part of the conceptual sub- or the subterranean conceptualizations that, um, you know, that she's making uh, hints towards or gestures towards. And I, I definitely don't think that the study, is, you know, as a result of not having a kind of you know, discussion of where the human fits into the larger picture in an explicit oh, right, right. way, right? Uh, definitely doesn't create a less than for the work, but um, in such a way as it definitely um, opens up the possibility for renegotiating the ways that we might think critically about how the human, you know, it sounds so clinical to say it as such, um, you know, the if we say the individual, the subject there, might as well <laughs> go real critical theory on this, um, but where the subject fits into this picture you know, in terms of a, you know, in there terms of their relationship, right? There, said it. <laughs> um, in terms of their relationship to a mortgage that is, you know, obviously distributed amongst um, kind of machinic operations of power and um, and the like, and then how the subject then perceives um, themselves um, as a um, as a part of this infrastructure, right? You know, and I think that 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 would be a brilliant yeah. move towards. An analysis, yeah. you know, as such. Because it's really interesting that we started off this conversation by talking about how, like, how richly and she engages, like, material, the materialization of these trends, in particular sites and processes, and, like, the way she works with data and all of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we have this particular question about, like, where is the subject or where is the human? Right. But, but that both of those are going on. It's, it's interesting. It's not bad. It's something that's interesting. And I think we've maybe identified some of the reasons why both of those things are going on in this text. <laughs> yeah, or we have maybe, both of yeah. those responses. Or that the human becomes a part, or the subject is a part of it's the... It's so weird that we're, like... The, all of us like post-humanists I know. back to the human coming back to the subject but no but it's built into the data I mean you just said it's built into the data <laughs> <laughs> what's I mean, happening and, and like every conversation the three of us have had together for the past like week and a half has been trashing on data data so. but then we're dealing with you know we're dealing with you know centralized data here and in such a way as, as to you know to discuss these kinds of trends to give empirical backing to these trends and 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 as and as such built within the very numbers that we're seeing are subjects and they're disaggregated and they're floating and they they're you know amorphous but nevertheless impacted by the ways in which this and I'm using the word again machinic way of um, of operating uh, of, of power is 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 doing you know is is you know enforcing and and playing upon um and look, I'm not, you know, the sub, in this way, not even trying to theorize subjectivity, but rather where and in what sense, um, you know, yes, within the, within the data there exists the, the subject. But, um, you know, of course, that's not, you know, Saskia Sazen's point throughout the project. It's about creating, you know, a systemic way of understanding, you know, it's understanding the systemic processes that are at play. Um Looking at facts on the ground, looking at that, then rebuilding, reforging, as you were mentioning, right. John, and um, and I think again, for other scholars, I think what's truly generative about it would be, you know, you can then take these things that have be that have been more or less detheorized and then retheorized, um, and look at how you know a subject is entering into the into the fold identifying then, you know, how subjectivity is operating, political subjectivity, for example, revolutionary subjectivity is another. Um, And I think that's like people who are doing ethnographies of the financial crisis, for example, that's really the kind of work, the kind of sociological work that really fits into that niche. And I think another thing, two things, one thing is I think, It's really, I mean, as people that all do various forms of affect theory, it's really important for us to read this because it sort of slaps us with cold water before we become dogmatic in a sense, you know, because I think I get so caught up in the body, which I would prefer to do than any other thing, but still that I forget to look at, I take certain logics for granted without (laughs) looking at how they're built up from the ground. (laughs) And so I think in moments like that, it's really important to read somebody like this and see how 
also data can be positively harnessed and used for qualitative theory. But I'll point out, like, Rachel, I agree with you, but, like, the way that you use, think about affect and emotion in your project is close to what Saucia Sassen is doing, Mm -hmm. if you ask me. What do you mean? Like, you meet the challenge that she poses, I think, in your work. But that's well, just you. me. That's just me, <laughs> like, you. thinking your product is amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, your second point. I just wanted to interject that. And the other thing I was thinking is, um, so I think it's because I was reading a bit of uh, about Vibrant Matter this morning, Jane, mm-hmm. Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter. and um, The infamous four-person podcast. Exactly. That went to hell. <laughs> but not because of Jane Bennett. If you've noticed, we've never done a four-person podcast since. Yeah. The room is just too small and hot for that. As our, our hot I'm room already is. sweating. Um, but say more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, anyway, so if we think about that, it's interesting to think about some of the different elements of um, financial instruments she talks about as ha- as being vibrant, as having mm, vibrant matter. That's brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. No, I'd love that. Not that I'm suggesting corporate personhood. No, Quite no, the no, opposite. Of course not. Right? No, of course not. But I mean, thinking about the actual affect of ramifications yeah. of something like a mortgage yeah. or stock. Or securitization, or, a securitized credit default swap. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Carbon trade emissions, things like that. Yeah. Foreclosed land. Yeah. Wow. That's, no, I, I love that's that. That's heavy, dude. No. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> These eyes are like. <laughs> okay, no, well, no. There's something like that's While we've all just, had our. It, well, our minds are blown. Do you, do you want to go? Well, be, I, I just, I had, you know, I don't know if it's directly linking up. But it's, it's, so at this panel that I was on at Philly, um, I met up with our good colleague, uh, Julie Holler. And Shout out, Julie. Julie, who's always brilliant. Um, always already brilliant. Always already, always already brilliant. Was discussing the ways in which, talking about affect and emotion, um, the ways in which people um, have, especially in legal arguments, that she's looking in terms of um, same-sex marriage. She's looking at um, who, like the economy of emotions, who have the you know the appropriate. How how do I frame how brilliantly she put it when we were walking through the constitutional um, convention <laughs> hall and I'm taking all of these selfies simultaneously, paying attention. There's to the some project, great right? B Julie selfies <laughs> at the constitutional um, building. But it's just very interesting in the Oberfeld decision and, and the like when um, there was a discussion about human dignity. Um, and what constitutes, in that sense, um, who gets to participate as, a, you know, as someone who has personhood, but also someone who has um, dignity, who has the um, emotional, uh, who fits the emotional economy um, within the legal sphere to make a claim um, as to, um, uh, you know, an, an dig- to, uh, I, damn it, I'm like, I'm totally um, blanking on this one. Um, it just reminded me of, of how, at least even in this particular instance, who gets to lay claim to having um, a kind of, if they're ex- through expulsions, yeah. who gets to lay claim to the emotional economy of, of a, of dignificate or of being dignified, of, um, of having the dignity to, um, you know, to have a legal claim and, and be heard in the first place of um, being, of, of being recognized under the law um, you know, as someone who is, quote, responsible, as someone who has, you know, um, all of the necessary, uh, quali- you know, qualities um, that fits into this sort of this weird affective economy that's being created as a result of these kinds of material processes. And the reason why I'm thinking of Julie's, um, you know, statements is that, you know, we have this real, this sort of the materialization of um, the marriage institution, as it were, and all the benefits and, you know, uh, you know, monetary benefits and tax benefits that go along with it. Um, and the wording of the law is very much about, you know, how the dignity of the plaintiff was being, you know, was ultimately being treaded upon by the state. But it's it's about who gets to participate in the economy of that um, human dignity and the like. Which we um, see, all, I mean, it's impossible to talk about that without talking about recent events, of course, and how um, the discussion of the killings in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq are so much um, under the shadow of the tragic deaths in France, as if they're less tragic. 
No, absolutely. Um, and fitting into, you know, in, in a discussion of like, how does, um, how does this economy of emotion map onto, you know, onto bodies that are lost and onto lives that are lost, um, in such a way as to give, um, more merit to some over others and how, for instance, I mean, Paris is a global city, um, and thinking that, you know, lives lost specifically, you know, Parisian lives lost, um, have in that way, um, you know, a weight to it in a, in an otherwise westernized and very orientalist, um, I, you know, ideology than lives lost in Beirut. Um, however, we might think, you know, through Beirut is also, you know, if we, if we think of Beirut as a global city, I don't know if that, um, you know, gets to, gets to be mapped on as a global city, um, that, you know, coverage, tends to be limited as a result and that those lives have a tendency to be less than, right. um, was excluded because they don't meet that moral economy of dignity. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting then, you know, when we're thinking about, well, to what extent then are lives within those global cities? I don't, maybe this isn't, uh, would it fit within, um, Sassen's argument? I'll to try to about, circle it back. Right. Well, to, to <laughs> situate it in such circle a way as to say part. those dwelling within the global city, and those well, I mean, operating as like as individuals within the infrastructure of that power, on some level, is there a is there an empowerment to the lives of those who dwell within, right, as accepted members of the global city, as as more more <laughs> in one way a kind of a citizen of global of the global well, this city. is I think this is one way to bring it back is to ask like so we're in New York, one of the global cities or whatever about, like, who gets expelled from being counted as a member of the global city, New York City, even if they live in, like, the geographic boundaries of New York City is, I think, a question to ask right along these lines. And this, like, walks us back to kind of the big question. We should probably talk about the title and, like, what exactly expulsion or logics of expulsion are for Sassen. Does one of you want to do that? Should I try to do it? I think she actually, she talks about it, um pretty directly in a couple places because like this is also i think one of the things that is i think is somewhat specific to this book and her project so actually the very first paragraph of the book she says it's pretty bluntly which is helpful Mm -hmm. we are confronting a formidable problem in our global political economy the emergence of new logics of expulsion the past two decades have seen a sharp growth in the number of people enterprises and places expelled from the core social and economic orders of our time This tipping into radical expulsion was enabled by elementary decisions in some cases, but in others by some of our most advanced economic and technical achievements. The notion of expulsions take us beyond the more familiar idea of growing inequality as a way of capturing the pathologies of today's global capitalism. Further, it brings to the fore the fact that the forms of knowledge and intelligence we respect and admire are often at the origin of long transaction chains that can end in simple expulsion. I focus on complex modes of expulsion because they can function as a window into major dynamics of our epic. Further, I select extreme cases because they make, sharp, they make sharply visible what might otherwise remain confusingly vague. I think that's good for now. Yeah, and then she goes on to say in the next page that these expulsions are something that are made, Mm -hmm. right? They happen through certain processes that one can trace and that she tries to trace. Mm -hmm. And I think then if we look to the conclusion after that quote that Rachel just read, we also kind of get this importance. And I think one of the, um, going back to like our discussion of what her method is, that's really important where she talks about how, you know, we can't just like focus on capitalism or something as, you know, the expansion of market rule across all these various domains. And one of the things that she's really focused on, I think, throughout is that you can have something like incorporation or profit or whatever at the same time that you have like this savage sorting, this brutality, these expulsions. And that's like a cluster of terms for her that work together. Yeah. Right. So when she talks about, um, you know, when she talks about the, you know, the financial instruments and financial securitization, you know, she wants to make clear that, like, this, you know, the foreclosure and the extraction of people from their homes is a moment of brutality and a moment of expulsion. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's an... 
incongruity, but one that makes sense in the context of these global dynamic subterranean trends that she's trying to identify, where once that mortgage and that family has been chopped up into 25 pieces split across how, who knows how many financial instruments, right, the, you can still profit regardless, profit can still happen alongside that particular model of expulsion. Mm-hmm. Right? So for her, it's not just that like inequality doesn't capture it and other kind of ways that popular discourses even try to talk about these things capture it, that it's specifically something about expulsion rather than other possible ways of understanding what's going on. Right? Absolutely. No, I think that's that's it. Almost as if profit is... is- colonizing in a way i mean in such a way as to move if we're talking about foreclosures right it's like if profits happening simultaneously is something's being chopped up after you know the 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 quote expulsion of a family from a home that's foreclosed on on their mortgage um and that profit is nevertheless being gained um how does that go back to i mean again this is a you know it it necessarily is cross-cutting, right? Because we're also dealing with, a, um, you know, the central claims of kind of Marxist critique of capitalism. Um, so it does go back to a certain kind of Marxist, you know, notion of the ways in which, you know, capitalism operates, um, at least as a simple assumption. I think only as a simple assumption. Only as I a think part assumption. of her project is to show how a Marxist critique can't totally take hold yeah. of it. Right. Um, and I think actually one of the most important places she does that is talking about um, financial markets mm-hmm. banking on that, like these kind of futures markets that bank on speculation derivatives. and and what the derivatives and also what doesn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that yeah. kind of not yet existing um, that is turned into a financial security um, on the speculative market is a gross departure from a Marxist form of capitalism in a really important way. And thus, you know, the way she says also in the conclusion, right, where expulsions become the material moments of these elusive and complex dynamics, like arising out of these complex instruments, right? Yeah. I think that that's really helpful in thinking about what it is that expulsions do. And so the other kind of linked for me, at least in my mind, concept that she ends up with as a result of her kind of work at these materialized moments that pairs with expulsion is out of the systemic edge yeah that she talks about in the conclusion yeah. so maybe we talk about that a little bit as you were talking i was thinking hauntology i'm not really quite sure why <laughs> i Just want to go back to Derrida. Hauntology. hashtag hauntology but what things are haunting these moments of speculation I mean, I thought it, she says it most clearly when she talks about how at the site of expulsion, general conditions take extreme form. So whether those are social conditions, economic, biospheric, as she says, at the edge of all of these, these conditions are the most extreme. So in other words, right before you become unhuman, on, you know, legal subject, on political subject, whatever you want to say, the, the conditions are the most extreme. But that actually brings up an interesting question. I don't know if it's fruitful for right now, so I'll throw it maybe out to the audience, but how is this similar and different to, like, Agamben or Schmidt's way of yeah, conceiving these question, things as right? we asked at the beginning? Yeah. yeah. I think one of the differences is that she's not locating the moment of exclusion or expulsion in sovereignty, sovereignty. right? Yeah. Yeah. She's locating it as something that's made, made. but yeah. it's something that's made through these really complex instruments yeah. that, you know, they may or may not have relationships to sovereignty, right? And the, speci- you know, the specific example of talking about land grabs, right, they have a kind of obtuse or oblique relationship to sovereignty because the sovereignty of the nation state um, is, you know, degraded or something through the particular processes of structural adjustment and the other sorts of processes that she talks about mm-hmm. um, in that chapter, right? So, like, I, th- so I think that's, like, one yeah. of the unique things, right, is that whatever expulsion or exclusion or pick your X word, excavation, is that what you wrote on your thing? Rachel, I want to ask you why you wrote that. Yeah, so, well, so, I, I mean, that reminds me of when she's talking about the shadow banking system, yeah. and she describes it as um, in the open, um, and, the, and in the open precisely through what she calls creative lawyering and kind of uh, corporate lawyers that work to make these laws feasible um, for land grabs and things like that. Um, so it's in the open, but also um, 
the investments and the disaggregation processes are opaque, like you said. And so she says that in 142. And I think that that's really useful to think about what is she bringing and what does it mean to be on the edge of something? Um, Is it at the edge of opacity, like where Mm. it starts to be beyond your visibility? And like, there's also that it's a matter of how localizable or visible is it in the sense of like, of, in the matter of expulsion through these complex financial instruments, right? Oh. It's really hard to trace the processes through mm-hmm. which is that ha- that's happening, especially in these dark pools or in the shadow banking system, where it's like a matter of you know high frequency electronic high frequency trading, right? Where it's algorithms who are doing the work of expulsion, yeah. right? Or the pro- they're doing their the processes of expulsion. Mm-hmm. So it's again harder to like locate, trace that back to like some sort of sovereign decision well, is, in the yeah. Schmidtian sense. I think like and so that's interesting because then if we were to recategorize, it's kind of a fugitive sovereignty that's happening. That's not, you know, rooted necessarily in a um, you know, obviously in this like traditional form of the state, we think fugitive sovereignty in this sense of um, it's being, you know, it, it kind of crops up here and there if it's algorithmic or otherwise um, that a traditional sense of what's different from, for instance, like the expulsion here is different from the Schmidtian sense because really a state of exception is something that's rooted in literally um, in the state that recognized sovereign as it were. Um, but now we're dealing with something that, you know, comes and goes, comes in and out, um, you know, within frame and then out of frame, something that becomes visible, but that then is invisible that nevertheless has, obvious, um, you know, uh, material consequences, devastating and brutal consequences, um, as much as, and I think maybe this is go, goes back to the quote that um, we were reading earlier, where we were thinking, you know, is it any less violent, right? This, this where, you know, imperial conquest of the past was very much violent. Um, and we were almost to the point of like wanting to critique that statement. But to say, really, you know, it's no longer about, you know, state conquest, um, as much as it is about, the ways in which these things that are just so behind the scenes and enmeshed, you know, again, 15 degrees away from um, potentially 15 degrees away from human suffering has a kind of sovereign power um, to its, you know, to its ability to distinguish, um, however, you know, brutally and and um, in, in this the word, you know, I was almost going to say in this discriminating way, but it's in an indiscriminating way. Um, it's indiscriminate it's discrimination. Yeah, it's indiscriminate discrimination in, the, in that sense, but nevertheless has a kind of quality of, of, of sovereignty to and it. And that's, that's its illogic. See, yes. that's, that's where I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. We need sovereignty. Well, and yeah, a yeah, I'm, not, or a I'm saying, or here. even rethinking what yeah. that would necessarily mean. Um, you know, in in following her step and saying rethinking the categorizations that we have, and 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 if, if that's the way that you know, if she's using logics in such a way, is that you know, there's a fugitive quality of sovereignty found within these kinds of things. It might not be useful in the traditional Schmidtian sense, and I think that might follow Sassen's critique here is that it's an out of date, you know, concept. You know, for instance. So let's rethink how it's operating um, within these sort of networks of um, embeddedness, this machine-like thing that that um, that's sort of—I don't want to say the object of her study, but objects of yeah. her study. Right? But I think it also makes sense why she doesn't bring in sovereignty because that's such a you know oversaturated yes, yeah. term for theorists, and she's yeah. trying to do the opposite of impose a theory. Mm-hmm. Just so everybody else, I've been doodling with a sharpie for the last half hour, so. I'm a little lightheaded from the fumes. <laughs> John and B may also be. So if we start to lose it, it's my fault. That's right. I, we have like I think one big set of questions more left to talk about with her. And one of the things that I noticed and was thinking about as we were reading the text is that there's like this strategic and/or rhetorical and/or political move to not be like. I'm doing my analysis and thus revolution in a way that like a lot of like. And I, this is like from, this is me. This is not like an insult lobbed at other. This is like a category that I'm absolutely included in, like bourgeois or petty bourgeois, like leftism, right? Where it's like an easy call to revolution or something like that. That's not what she's doing because she's, you know, she says we need to think about like the role that the sovereign nation state can play yeah. in working against these land grabs. Finance, if it's, you know, limited to like mortgages or finance that like then gets materialized into like green public works projects right. is 
those finance is necessary. The like kind of, you know, the end of chapter three and then the conclusion, like the alternative model to exclusion in the current stage of capitalism or whatever we're in right now is not like the revolution. It's Keynesianism. And also it's like she says, changing our understanding of growth and prosperity. Yeah. So thinking about growth and pro. So it's also in our own mindset, thinking about growth and prosperity, not in a typical like, 19, early 1990s IMF development mm-hmm. finance public private partnership mm-hmm. mode, but which is another example of this dynamic that it's not yeah. you know this is like a reformist text and I don't mean that as an epithet even though it has epithetic uh, connotations on the left. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is up with that? I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm just, that just really interested me and it was something that I noticed going on throughout the text. Like what do we make of that? those particular linked set of that linked set of moves. I think it would be incongruous with the rest of the text if yes. suddenly she advocated yes. for revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, because precisely what she's doing is building up from the bottom, like she says at the beginning, to get to the other side of um, you know, these theories, however she however she says it. And so if we're building up from the bottom, it wouldn't make sense to suddenly say, therefore we take down the whole system. Right. It would make sense to say, um, let's talk about green markets, public works, financial institutions that don't disappear but are more responsible, creative lawyering that's put to better use. Things well, because like they're that. already deeply embedded in an assemblage or a machine-like structure that she has been spending much of the time in the project trying to make visible. Yeah. And so things that have been subterranean. So I think in that sense, um, it's not... <laughs> Um, I think that, you know, yeah, it would be it would be very strange to all of a sudden advocate revolution. But at the same time, now that we've made these processes visible, what do we do with them? Um, Or now that we've made these processes, you know, maybe available in a way that we can intellectualize them um, and and as such hold them in our hands and reconstruct them, you know, to to reform them in a way. And I, um, I think that, you know, what, you know, I guess like. John, you said, like, what is up with that? You know, I think that in... In a good way. In a good way. Yeah, no, in a good way. I think, like, you know, what the fuck's up with that? Um, I think in in such a way that most people don't have, I think, a conceptual vocabulary to even sit down and really negotiate what kinds of things would actually need to take place. But what Sasan is doing here is saying, here are the things that are taking place. Here's what this looks like, not only from the, the standpoint of, you know, a de-theorized fact, but here within the larger framework, if we want to return back to neoliberalism, if we want to return back to Marxism and, and the like, here are the things that, you know, are underlying each of these processes that are cropping up as yeah. things we're reading on the news, but we don't know how to make sense of it. And she's allowing for a conceptual vocabulary such that we can make sense and as such, make changes to it if we're willing to take on the epistemic commitment to do it. Um, and the material commitment. And not the material, yes. No, yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to make that like sort of the coextensive claim, right, of epistemic and material commitments to um, to that kind of change. But yeah, I think that's... I've, Fuck yeah. Because, I mean, part of it is that, like, the, where she ends in the conclusion with this concept of the systemic edge is she say that she says that that systemic edge is, apparently I've been inhaling the fumes, um, <laughs> that, systemic edge, that systemic edge is where there's, like, that cutting edge is where part of it falls into incorporation, what she associates as, like, the logics of Keynesianism is a logic mm-hmm. of incorporation. Right, so that's the movement she wants to trace, and there's actually, like, I think a very kind of never mind. I don't need to go into the Deleuze and Guattari point, which I was going to go to because that would, I think, be against the spirit. Yeah, of the let's book. not do it. Um, <laughs> but like, I just think that that's the <laughs> so, very harshly against that. Movie, <laughs> I just don't want to go into it. <laughs> I just don't want to go into Deleuze right now. I just really can't. I, just can't. <laughs> I don't have the emotional capacity. I don't. <laughs> and I and I think there's also a question because this is. Other than there's like a little move in the very last paragraph that I think points to the fact that she that she like wants to signal that she realizes it's not the same as like we can go back to Keynesianism and incorporation and stuff. Because in that last paragraph, she talks about one of the important reasons to make vis- make conceptually visible the spaces of the expelled these logics of expulsion is because in those expulsions that may be like the new modes of making and making is an interesting word hmm. that she uses in that very last paragraph hmm. why which i think you know i think that should prompt us to 
have kind of a like critical distance to be like, you know, obviously this isn't just like, let's go back to, no. you know, 1950s style Keynesianism or like late 1940s Keynesianism, but right? which, had its, own, which like, had its own expulsions and exclusions mm-hmm. built in in a number of ways too. We should, but in that way, mm-hmm. it's neither wholly reformist exactly. nor revolution. It's yes. like imminent revolution in a way. Like if we think about Kathy. Now going into Deleuze. <laughs> right. If we think about Kathy Weeks. And her claim that we talked last about episode. on the last episode about um, remaking the world and yeah. spaces to remake the world within modes of the social factory or social mm-hmm. reproduction. Yeah. I mean, that's in some ways parallel to, I think, what she's doing there. And be cognizant simultaneously of, you know, when we're remaking the world within these social spaces, what kinds of, you know, logics of domination are already working, you know, within, you know, either gendered sex and race, place, you know, spaces and, and, and logic. So uh, the reason why I would even, oh, fuck, sorry. <laughs> what? No, no, I, I, I had a, I could have said that much more eloquently, but instead, it came out, no, 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 keep it. Oh. Uh, you know, to just being aware that simply talking through Keynesianism or talking through these, the, you know, new ways of living at the systemic edge, for example, also has to have within it um, a dialogue about what race, you know, ethnicity, language, um, sex, gender, all of that, you know, will be engaging with um, or how we will be engaging with that yeah. and how it structures our discourse. So, yeah, absolutely. Two really quick things for me, and then we'll be wrapped up and we can move on to our other favorite segments. But Rachel, when you talked about um, financial instruments as a matter of, like, as vibrant matter in some way, I was thinking about there's a really good interview with a book that I really would like to read. Um, it was on an interview on new books and critical theory, which you all should be listening to anyway. Um, but it was with Joe DeVille. It was the, his book is Lived Economies of Default, Consumer Credit, debt collection and the capture of affect and there's a little bit yeah i I maybe use that phrase once or twice in or seven thousand times in (laughs) dissertation chapter um but that was a really good interview um that i think gets a little bit of the dynamics that you were talking about Hmm. and then my other second thing is that we forgot to mention this at the top of the show but it was commenter on the website dmf who has like this cool abstract picture of a whale as their wordpress icon who suggested we read the saucius awesome book in the first place so thank you commenter dmf on our website. Thank you, DMF. Thanks, DMF. All right, we'll be back with lots of fun segments. Okay, so we talked about it over, and, you know, there's a problem. Usually right now we would have a lot of fun with the world's favorite podcast segments. One or several wolves, my Tumblr friend from Canada, my personal favorite. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite's the summary. (laughs) But why? So what's the preface, John? What's going on? I I don't know. The problem is that none of you sent in advice questions for us to answer or dreams to analyze. So there's going to be no segments. Um, So my advice, I suppose. Yeah. um, Unsolicited. Unsolicited um, would be, you know, send in those advice questions. Send in dreams, however wacky. Um, You know, we're always already willing yeah. Um, to to really you know jump in depth uh, into these things so and we value our listener input um, and participation we would like to think of it as an intersubjective exchange however virtual um, so yes yeah we would would that be like a mis- like a masumi kind of way of thinking know. of intersubjective virtuality we can still there. create a, a sense of co presence just See? so everybody yeah. knows I okay. have an article coming out on this oh. in Global Network Woo-hoo! special issue on transnational migration and co presence there we go and also look back to our interview with the boss Jaffer because he takes up some of those very themes too that's maybe like a little about a year ago a little over a year ago so remember are you in grad school need some help you probably do i need help all the time reading, but i talk about the but these two people you know, about it my problems and issues reading on a regular basis. Wine, you know which wine do you drink hegel right? with we're not going to answer that now you have to ask you such a ask question. such questions so you drink, please don't i mean don't you just drink absinthe with hegel hey you're you're, you're trying to get them to no i get it yeah. i get it 
Uh, speaking of which, I did have that would, a, that would, that's a good that's good advice, Rachel. There was a small get together <laughs> um, at my apartment not too long ago, in which I had uh, you know the drunken group of people read paragraph twenty three from Phenomenology. Okay. Um, I don't know why I had them do that, but I said I, it, it's why. I said I it's why. my favorite pair. It's my favorite part of the preface from Phenomenology, and they said why, and I said you're going to have to read it to find out, and they read it and they didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> On what that is note, paragraph twenty three? It's about the no, subject. don't tell me. No, <laughs> yeah, this is we're trying to be withholding in this. True. All right. Actually, oh. tell so us. you're going to have to. We email want something us. you want. Give us advice. Questions. Come on, please. Or you know, or some really fun dreams. Yeah. Fun dreams. We so. have a dream, but we can't quite talk about it on the podcast for reasons. Yeah, for some we're going to answer that one privately. Yeah, listener S. I think S was there. But as always, we were super appreciative um, for, you know, tuning in and uh, would be even more appreciative for some advice, questions, and dreams to analyze. Yeah, basically. Thanks so so much. Thank you. For listening. Emily Crandall would say, you have to go... What does Emily Crandall say? Have an always already day. Oh, oh yeah. Have an always, always already, already day. day. That's so cute. That is cute. I love you, Emily. Love you. joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by B. Altman, Rachel Brown, Emily Crandall, James Padalone Jr., and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at alwaysalreadyon, subscribe to our RSS feed, subscribe to us on iTunes, and please leave a nice review on iTunes as well. Stay tuned for the next episode, and until then, bye! Hi, Always Already listeners. This is B And Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> okay.